Good evening, everybody. This evening, I'd like to reflect a little on the theme of motivation. I know there's a lot of people in this room who've done a lot of practice. I looked at the forms today. And I know some of you are newer also. And it can be very useful for us at different times in our practice over the years to reflect on this theme of motivation. What moves you to come here this week to sit and walk with your own heart, mind, body? Why did you come? What motivates you? What is the moving force? What is the fuel that has you show up on your cushion? That has you show up with this breath, even if it's one? That has you show up at the walking? That has you get out of bed in the morning? Because over the years, our motivation can change. And it's something that is both implicit, like all of you have a motivation for coming here. It may not be clear to you, all of you, or it may be very clear, but there is a motivation. And we want to find out what that is. We can make it really, really clear to find out what it is that you're cultivating through this motivation. And motivation is also something that can be cultivated. Right? We can actually work with skillful reflections to open our motivation so that it is more and more aligned with the depth of what we are. So I wonder if you have all been to visit yet our new... Uh, Guy House resident in the walking room, the skeleton that has arrived this year for our reflection, our contemplation, our inspiration, our motivation. If you haven't, you don't have to. Um, you've probably seen the sign up on the notice board. We now have been, uh, a skeleton has been given to Guy House, and he. Well, I don't know if you still call it he, once somebody's bones. He was a he. Is now resident in the walking room in the cross-legged posture that many of you are sitting in right now. And this, he is there not for your horror or fright, but because in the Buddhist tradition and wisdom traditions, it's recognized that a direct encounter, a direct contemplation, eyes open, fearless in the face of this inevitable fact of death, is something that can propel us, something that can motivate us, something that can fuel our journey if we know how to reflect upon it wisely. So this is why he is here. But I'll get to him in a minute. In one of the Tibetan traditions, they say that everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's recognized that the what our intention is, what it is that's propelling us, has a fruit, right? If, you know, the the traditional thing is, if I plant the seed of a mango, I'm going to get a mango tree. I'm not going to get an apple tree. With your motivation for coming here, we need to find out what it is so we can see, we can clarify, we can work out, do I want to cultivate this? I've seen the difference for myself Practicing when my motivation is fueled by um, interest in deepening 
And other times when my practice has been fueled by, I want to get out of here, right? I don't want to be impacted by anything else. I want a nice kind of protective wall around myself. Uh, Maybe if I sit, I can get that and not be so impinged upon because the world sometimes can feel rather impinging. But each of those motivations has a different result. Each of those motivations has a different way I'm propelled to come sit on the cushion. Each of those motivations has a different way I'll get out of the bed in the morning. Right? How can I get out of bed in the morning so I won't be impacted by anything? How can I get out of bed in the morning and find out whatever it is I need to find out to go deeper, to see clearly? And in fact, the Buddha made a, a, a very, had very radical teachings, actually, but this radical comment, which is talking about this shift in motivation, when he said that fools, F-O-O-L-S, fools, seek for experience. The wise seek to understand it. Right? Fools seek for experience, and we're all fools at times. It's not that we're one or the other, but we're talking about a turning as we practice and reflect a turning, a turning, a turning, again and again as we encounter life head on. We're all foolish at times. It's not used as a judgment. It's used as a way of saying, if we cultivate always trying to get the right experience or trying to avoid the wrong wrong experience, this behavior leads us to pathways of unhappiness. If we think that our home, that our rest, that the peace that we all deeply yearn for in our hearts is going to be when we get it all right, when we get the right experience, we'll continually be disappointed. Experience can't deliver that to us. And my God, I'm sure we've all tried right, to get it just right. It can't deliver. It doesn't mean there isn't beautiful and wholesome and beneficial, lovely things in this world. There are. But to find our rest, the deep rest, where the heart can breathe out, And rest. This is found discoverable when we make that shift to not try to get the right experience, but to understand experience, to understand what's going on. This is the shift, actually, that that makes the difference from a worldly life to a spiritual life. So what propelled you to come? It's really useful to sit with that question. Not to judge any of our motivations, but just to get really clear. Am I just wanting to uh, bide my time between Christmas and the 3rd of January? And there might be some of that. It's okay. But what else is motivating you? What do you love about practice? What do you care about in the cultivation of this lifetime, this short, fleeting lifetime? Because we're all propelled by something, actually. Even when you're sitting here trying to mind your own business, you can still see there's a propelling energy that often we'll start to notice in the mind, kind of propelling these thoughts around this and that, and you know, getting busy with this, getting busy with that, trying to shout at that thought, trying to push this one away. There's a lot of energy in the mind. 
How can we skillfully use that which propels us in a skillful direction, in a direction that leads towards freedom, that leads towards pathways of happiness? I heard a story the other day. I don't actually know what happened, but apparently in the sales on Boxing Day on the 26th, it was a record day for sales because it was a Saturday and, I don't know, the weather was difficult, uh, cold before Christmas, so everybody was ready to go shopping on Boxing Day, apparently. And in one store, it was reported that actually blood was drawn in someone's attempt to safeguard their right to get that purchase, whatever it was, and keep everyone else away. I don't know how bad the damage was. All I heard was that there was blood drawn in one of the cells. And probably you all know that energy. Some, maybe you've seen it in yourself. You know, Maybe you don't queue up for the sales on Boxing Day, but maybe it shows up somewhere else where we're propelled. Right? And in this case, whoever he or she was was fixated on that thing in that shop at that price today. And whoosh, you've seen it probably or been there. The doors open and then whoosh, in they go. Right? And push someone else out of the way, some blood, and I get it. Right? And I get my thing. And for that person, there really is a promise. Somewhere in the mind, and we'll have all seen this, there is a promise that if I get that thing at that price, somehow that will fulfill me. And it probably will for a little while, on some level. Right? But what would it be to turn that very same energy towards our desire for waking up? towards our desire for seeing clearly, towards our showing up on the cushion with this breath, with this painful knee, with this mind, with this heart, with this love, with this sorrow, with this blandness, to turn that energy in this direction. Imagine if you wanted to wake up for the benefit of all beings as much as that person wanted that handbag whatever it was, right? Imagine queuing up at the meditation door. I'm going to be the first in. Let me in, you know, elbowing everyone out of the way. Yeah, right. Yeah, right? Now, of course, it would need some refinement, right? Of course, it would need some refinement. Still, the focus is a little external. In practice, we're always learning to kind of rein in very gently and kindly that external gaze of the promise of whatever it is out there or the promise of whatever it is in the right experience here, right? But turning that external gaze in. So there's, there you are at the door of Guy House Meditation Hall dying to get in here, right? to get on your cushion, so that you can show up at the meeting with this moment. Right? So the external gaze would need to be refined. Also, that sense of futurizing would need to be refined. Right? For that person in the queue, it's when I get that handbag. And we can do the same thing with practice. It's when I get four breaths together, when, I get, when my knees are better, when I've stopped coughing... When I've got enough concentration that I can feel a bit more, whatever it is, still futurizing, still putting it out there in the future. And we rein that back in as well. Right? The external gaze and the time, putting our goal in the future, reining that, that back in. So that that same propelling force that can drive us to shop, can drive us to the fridge, the other day I noticed myself a little tired and kind of not quite focused. And Do you ever have those mindless moments? <laughs> there I was in my house, turned up at my fridge, opened it, and there was that pr- I was propelled. I was propelled to the fridge. But there was actually nothing in there that I wanted to eat. 
So I was standing at the fridge, gazing in it, wanting to want something in the fridge. So somewhere that propelling energy could go, but it couldn't go anywhere. Can we rein that back in? And where does it leave us? It leaves us right back here. But where does that energy go when we land back here? Does it all dissipate? Okay, so in the Dharma, I can't have all the things I want, and you know, it's not going to be out there, and it's not in the future. Okay, I may as well just sit here. But what about turning that propelling force towards our desire to see deeply, to wake up for peace? So I want to go straight to one of the most powerful reflections in, as a human being, actually. It, this reflection does not belong to the Buddha Dharma, but the Buddha Dharma has it very well fleshed out for us to contemplate. And this would not normally be the theme on the first night talk of a retreat for beginners. It's not normally, it's not necessarily what will switch everybody on. It will not switch everybody on initially to Dharma, to looking deeply. And it's the reflection on death, the many reflections on death, actually. There are many metaphors given in teachings to bring urgency to us. And the reflection on death is one of the ones that can really bring an urgency to wake us up. There's the metaphor... Um, in the teachings of the Buddha describing our predicament like being in a, being like children in a house playing with toys and the house is burning down. Right? But we're kind of oblivious to that. And as I go through a couple of these reflections that bring urgency, please, I want you to notice what happens in your system in response. Right? So just take a couple of breaths, just to notice where these strike you, how they strike you. So metaphor number one, like children playing with toys in a house that is burning. In one Zen tradition that I practiced in every night, we would chant, I can't remember all of the pieces of the verse, but it was something like, as night was coming, and it was the last sitting of the night, it was something like, um, another day is over, another opportunity is lost. Make haste, do not squander your life. Another day is over. Another opportunity for practice is lost. Make haste. Do not squander your life. Just take a breath and notice what happens. Right? Notice if you're hearing it mostly as an intellectual reflection, which is fine. That your head can hear it and process it. Yes, I know. We're all going to die. You might notice it impacts you on the level of the heart. Or the belly. On a very visceral kind of level. We need to be careful with these reflections that bring urgency. Some of us really do need to be shocked a little out of 
a kind of a sleep where we think we can kind of practice forever. Some of us, and I want you to check in where you are with this, some of us do need a shock like that to say, hold on a minute, you really don't know. And it's really true. Last year when I was teaching, I think I must have had some illusion that actually nobody's going to drop dead during one of my retreats. Right? Why not? I didn't know I had that idea until, and, and, and nobody did drop, drop dead during my retreats, but on two occasions, a, a, a ma- an elderly man, a different elderly man, collapsed during one of the sittings on my retreats, twice in the same year. And it wasn't sure in the beginning, of course, when somebody clap, keels over and collapses, if they're alive or dead. And I suddenly realized, I must have had the idea that that doesn't happen on retreats. You know, we have these peculiar illusions of continuity that we don't know we're carrying until we're shocked a little bit out of it. Neither of those men died as it happened. But I remember sitting with um, Roshi Joan Halifax here. Were any of you here some years ago when she was teaching here? Right. And she told a story of a young man, a very young man, sitting in one of her retreats. I think he was in his early 30s, and in Zen style they sit facing the walls. And it's very orderly and regimented, so the bell goes and you all stand up. Right, and you follow that discipline. It's part of, you know, training the mind. And she said the bell rang, and this young man didn't get up. And she said at first she was, a, I think she said she was a little bit annoyed, and and then she went over, and this man had died in his seat on the retreat. She also said the next thought that passed through her mind was, lucky thing, what a great place to go, right? While sitting in Zazen. But it's really true, we don't know. So some of us really need this reflection and to reflect on it again and again when we wake up in the morning. Reflections in the teachings of, um, you know, from all that is dear to me, in my life, I will one day be parted. Many, many, many reflections we can use to wake us up. Some of us might notice that reflections that bring urgency, we may hear them as thoughts, they may impact us on the level of the nervous system at first, if we're carrying a lot of shock in our body, for example. And what might happen is we hear it, we, we recognize it's true, yes, there is death and I want to cultivate my mind in this life, but we kind of... <gasps> we get a little shocked. We need to know if this is happening, because in this case, this reflection is not going to help us yet. right? Sometimes we can hear that and we get shocked into sitting, right? God, I'm not going to live forever. I better go to Gaia House. right? But we start to kind of rise up above our solar plexus and we're anxious. I'm practicing from here. I can't take my seat and relax yet. So if we notice that's what happens when reflections on death come, it's okay to let them go. And to, until we've slowed down enough, until there's enough relaxation that we can hear it, we might perceive the reactivity of the, in the nervous system and the mind, we can release, we can breathe out, we can land in our seat and let the reflection strike us when we're a little bit more at home in our seat. But some of us need 
waking up. Shocking a little bit out of this sense of continuity. It's a trance. It's like the mind is in a trance. That, yeah, I'll probably be here till next Sunday. The truth is we don't know. So we want the urgency to use the propelling energy that we all have to get more and more in alignment with our desire for waking up, whatever that might mean to us. To us, We may not conceive it in terms of liberation or awakening, but whatever it is that is your deepest motivation, the urgency for that And also at the same time, the long view where we can relax, we can breathe out. One teacher says, practice as if you had 10,000 lifetimes to reach the goal, but don't waste a moment. Right? Practice as if you had 10,000 lifetimes to reach the goal, but don't waste a moment. So first we can breathe out, have the long view, stretch out. And yet to realize that we really do just have this moment. To not waste it. So if you, some of you will have spent time with our skeleton already, I'm sure, or the skeleton. Or some of you may have walked in the walking room and kind of seen him at the edge and carried on with the walking. Some of you may have been very struck by him. It, what the correct word is. Some of you may feel a little fearful about the contact. See what is appropriate for you, but there are various ways we can benefit from this contemplation. And one of them is to go in there and sit with him. If you want to. None of this need come from I should. You know, this is what Buddhists do. They sit with dead things, right? Do it if you want to. Do, if it, do it if it inspires you, if you want to inquire for yourself, what arises for you with that. You know, sometimes when people, some people are questioned about their motivation, they say, I don't know why I practice. I do it because I should. Right? Or it's good for me. Someone tells me it's good for me. I'm not sure yet, but someone tells me it's good for me. <coughs> that might be enough to get us here in the beginning, but it's not enough to keep going. All of us have deeper reserves of what it is we truly seek, we truly want. And we do need to learn how to tap into those in the course of the years of practice. So one way of being with him is to sit with him. You might want to go in there when it's not a walking time. There's a chair in there at the moment, or you can take a cushion in and sit opposite in his cross-legged posture. And one way of contemplating it is if the mind is a little still, if you are feeling quite steady and awake, to breathe and sit and just see how you're impacted by the contact. Right? Just let your perception be open to see how it is to receive this image that was a real being, a real living, walking, breathing, aspiring being. And you may be impacted all in different ways. The first time I went in and sat with him, what struck me first was his ribs. Right? You see the rib cage. 
all these ribs. And suddenly, so it came as a thought, but it also came as a direct perception. I suddenly became aware of my ribs, the boniness and the number of ribs that are kind of propping up this chest, just as his chest is propped up in that seat. And through that direct perception, suddenly recognizing in myself, wow, it's not so different, this one. could feel my bones in their arms and the hands and the ribs. Beca- became very aware of the skeletal structure. Somebody else went in and told me that they noticed what they were struck by first was the sheer nakedness, the sheer vulnerability of the human form, that he's right there naked, not only in the sense of no clothes, but no flesh, opened out, visible, and that this person was very touched by the nakedness of the human predicament when we're not identifying with our flesh and our mind. But this very simple being here. Another way we can use the reflection is to use the intellect, to use our intellect to reflect, to support us in looking deeply. And one way is to sit with him and you let the imagination open out. Use the imagination to recognize, oh yeah, this was a man who lived. This was a man who had flesh on his legs, who woke up in the morning and tried to make a livelihood, who tried to gather the requisites of life together who wanted safety, just like I do, who wanted happiness, who wanted satisfaction, who may or may not have known pathways that led in that direction. This very real encounter, because what we're not having to do there, as we do normally with live human beings, is that there's a lot of filters, a lot of filters of, you know, how's the relationship doing? With me and you. You don't have to do that with him. He's not worried about that at this point. So we too have the chance to be quite naked and open and vulnerable in this. So here's a poem that I think goes with this reflection. But as you hear it and breathe and feel yourself impacted by it, notice if this reflection on death is something that is making you contract further or if it's supporting you to open. Just to be aware of that, what's actually happening here. It's by Red Hawk. And it's called The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough and it is no longer worth it to get out of the bed. The morning is cold. The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper. Through another hard layer of pain... You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face. Leak more every year into your yellowing shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time comes when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight 
but only left holding a bag full of bones. Don't be in a hurry to pack it all in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and then to sit here in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you stealing everything in sight but only left holding a bag full of bones. The time comes when it's easier to die and he's not, the metaphor isn't using the, the uh, analogy of physical death here, but to die right here on our cushion. Another time when I was reflecting with a skeleton and I felt my skeleton and I saw his had no flesh and kind of there's that realisation, yeah, this one day too, the flesh will drop off this one, was this kind of, oh, yeah, the flesh can just drop off. And where it left me, not at all morbid or unhappy, but kind of lighter, right? As we let ourselves die on the cushion, die letting the mind states pass, letting our propelling nature of pulling this and pushing that, seeing all of that and opening up and letting it all die. This is what our practice invites us to, to Use the death reflection to die here and now such that we wake up with more space, with more lightness, with more joy. This is what is on offer. There's a, a beautiful true story I heard from... Uh, I don't know if it's a beautiful story. It's a poignant story from a North American prison uh, where in that state they... St- had still had to have the death penalty and there were a number of men um, living for years you know how sometimes people can live for years on death row without knowing their date which is quite something to live with and uh, in this particular prison they uh, rather than have the men in their cells for years and years they had them come and do some work you know some simple work at first with lots of guards, because these were supposedly very dangerous people. And over the weeks and months, they needed less and less guards. They recognized that the atmosphere in this particular workroom was very uh, kind, actually. And it became, it, it was drawn to the attention of the prison officers and the director, and someone came in to find out how come how come the atmosphere in here is so reverent, actually? A lot of kindness the men were showing to each other. And one of the men said, because we know we're all going to die. That somehow that can cut through our pettiness, can cut through our complacency, can cut through our <clears throat> can cut through the momentum that where the propelling energy is leading in pathways that actually we don't want to cultivate anymore. This is why this reflection on death is used to wake us up right now. <clears throat> So if you're someone in hearing this that knows it would be useful for you to spend more time with this, please do that. Some of you have many years of practice and sometimes some of us reach plateaus in our practice where we're kind of ticking along and we know how to get a little bit comfortable and peaceful for a week or maybe. But the fuel, the um, zest may have drained away. And one way to contact that is to use these reflections, spend time with the skeleton, come in and dedicate our sitting. See, I actually, I want to dedicate this sitting to waking up 
before I die, or whatever is your language, make it personal, make it yours. Because that really does focus the mind, actually. And focusing the mind doesn't mean we're going to be suddenly in deep samadhi if we get our motivation sorted out. It just helps align us, align us with our deepest aspiration and motivation. And another, I won't have time to go into all the different things we can reflect on for motivation, but another very big theme that can support our motivation is to reflect on bodhicitta. And this isn't used traditionally so much in the Theravadan tradition. Right? It's used more in the Mahayana tradition. But I want to offer this reflection for you to see also if this is something that either is what you're in alignment with or is something you're ready to be in alignment with or something you aspire maybe to be in alignment with. And this is the motivation to practice, to show up in this moment, to wake up here and now with whatever I'm with. Again, it's not about making it later. It's about what propels me to show up with this heart, this mind, this breath, this ache, this love. The dedication to wake up for the benefit of all beings. That coming to a sitting and knowing, yeah, this sitting is dedicated to the liberation of all beings. Or when I wake up in the morning, yeah, okay, I may feel really grumpy and horrible right now, but I'm going to align my mind with this aspiration to wake up for the benefit of all beings. So wherever you are with that, whether it's pie in the sky, whether it feels like a burden, sometimes we can hear it and think, oh my goodness, it's hard enough taking on this being for liberation. I don't want to take on everyone else. It's not a reflection to burden us. It's actually one to support us to include more and more of life. When we reflect on it, it can support us to the heart actually to unbind and relax a little bit more. To practice for all beings is actually more in alignment with the truth of our interconnection with things. It's fine in the beginning if our motivation is, hold on a minute, I can't take on all beings, I can barely get myself to the cushion, I've got enough suffering going on here. Right? That's fine. It's fine. And at some point we might see that that feels a little limited. Right? <coughs> and if we do, we can use this reflection of bodhicitta, of opening our practice to recognizing that each and everyone here in this whole world, everyone we have ever met, everyone we have never met, all those who've died and gone before us, and all those who are yet to be born, all beings, human and beyond, want peace, want safety, want happiness, want fulfillment. Don't always know the way to go about that. Not all beings have had the good fortune to, to have teachings and ways and places where we can be turned in the direction of pathways that lead onward. And so we can reflect on this human sea of beings where, as you all know for yourself, sometimes we can be thrashing around, thrashing around trying to find a little bit of happiness here or there. And that this predicament can really touch our heart, seeing it in ourself, seeing it in our world, and let it impact us. Let that reflection impact us. And again, if we're not just seized on the level of the nervous system, like, okay, now I have to save all beings as well as myself, right? And we <gasps> tense up. 
if we can drop more deeply into our seat and include the possibility that something of my practice is directly related to the freedom and happiness of beings. Some, some little inkling in us might get that on some level, even if to our conceptual mind it may not make sense yet. That this can support the heart actually to relax. It's like, ah, I can come and sit and dedicate this sitting and all beings are here too. It's not so lonely, right? We're really here with all beings. And the more we practice, the more we actually get to see that that's true. All beings isn't some abstract thing out there. All beings start to show up in here. If any of you have ever sat with your mind long enough, you probably see quite a few beings arising here. Right? Arising in order to be liberated. Arising to be known and recognized and no longer in that bondage of believing them as absolutely the absolute truth. So if this reflection speaks to you, use it. Some people come and before each sitting will say, yeah, this sitting is dedicated to the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. It can, it can hone the mind. It can bring a, a freshness and clarity and a generosity as a very generous intention to it. And this reflection can go very, very deep if we want to follow it through. And there are some beautiful teachings which some of you may or may not know. Um, the work of Shanti Deva, talking about the Bodhisattva's way of life, the one who is dedicated to the liberation of all beings. And there's lots and lots of verses to it, but I'll read you a little bit of it. And again, it's aligning ourselves with this if we want to, if we're ready for that. I am the medicine for the sick and the weary. May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to those in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. May I be their servant to give them all they desire. May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway for those who desire the other shore, a lamp for those who need a lamp, a bed for those who need a bed, May I be a wishing gem, an inexhaustible vase, a magic spell, a great medicine, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty for all beings. As the elements of earth and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space, may I be the means of sustenance for the realms of beings in all of space until all have reached liberation. And by this merit may the blind see and the deaf hear, the fearful cease to tremble, the afflicted be consoled and the weary made content. May the sick be made whole again, those in bondage freed, may the weak be strong and loving to each other. And as long as the earth and sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. As long as the earth and sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world.
So one thing I want to caution you to is that we don't use these very profound reflections to give ourselves a hard time. Right? That we suddenly hear something like that and think, gosh, you know, I'm really a long way from that. I obviously shouldn't be here. Um, I'm only here for myself. See, I knew I was selfish. And, you know, get into a spiral of judgment and self-blame. Does anybody have that tendency? Right? They're not to be used for that. Please, if you see that you're doing that with them, judging yourself for falling short of something magnificent, maybe you can be like the person in the queues for the sales and instead of drawing blood from you know, your competitors, to actually use that force to defend your right to practice with whatever is your current motivation, with whatever our, our petty selfishness is, Right, whatever are our small-minded contractedness, of course that's all going to still be there as well. This isn't asking us to be something we're not. It's offered to perhaps speak to a part of us that recognizes that, yes, our connection with beings is deeper and vaster than our mind can possibly conceive. That place in us can hear this teaching. That that judges us can be defended against, to defend our right to sit with our mind, our heart, our pettiness, our pushing and pulling, where we're propelled in odd directions, so that we can start to work with it with kindness, that we can start to work with it with a heart that accepts this being too as she is, with all my beauty and lovely aspiration and all of my contractedness and limitation because we're all of it really and actually practice lets us see more and more that we are all of it we are the vast unlimited extraordinary nature of mind and we all have the capacity to be petty and contracted Practice in knowing that we can be all of it is also part of what liberates us to open our heart to each other more and more. So I want to finish with um, a rendition of the story of the night of the Buddha's awakening. Probably all of you know the story. This one is retold by um, Joseph Campbell. So it's a little bit more colourful, um, told in a mythological, uh, as a mythological story. And it is as the not yet Buddha, the Bodhisattva, it aligns with his intention actually to be free, that it's possible. Of course, once we align with our motivation, then we're assailed by all the things that aren't free. Right? It's like you come on retreat to understand about liberation. You sit on your cushion and you start to see all the places that you're not free. Right? Anyone seen that today? Right? That's what comes first. And it's powerful, actually, when we align with a motivation, we see that even more clearly. The Buddha-to-be placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Kama Mara, the god of love and death. The dangerous god appeared, mounted on an elephant, carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear, as far as to the confines of the world. Has anybody been assailed that bad today? (laughs) The protecting deities of the universe took flight, right? Expect them to show up at that point. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his motivation, concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons and keen edges... 
burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness. Have you had any of those today? Right? They're told in the, as metaphors, but they're metaphors for the mind, right? The antagonist hurled against the saviour, but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed his daughters, desire, pining, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, So that's very interesting. The very last Mara to assail the Buddha is the inner critic, right? When Mara says, who do you think you are sitting there thinking you can be free? So if you hear that one in here, you're in good hands, right? But you need to spot it. You need to work with it, right? So the God finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the earth with his fingertips, and thus bid the earth goddess bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. So the Buddha, in his last attack on his seat, which was the critic, which is the kind of modern psychological language for this kind of discus coming at him, right? The Buddha saw it and reached down and touched the earth, and the earth bore witness to his right to sit on the immovable spot and no freedom. So let's sit for a moment in your immovable spot. May all beings meet themselves with kindness. May all beings meet themselves with wisdom. May all beings know deep peace. 